Welcome to Indigo Studio. Today, we've got a lively conversation on reparations. We hear a lot these days about that concept. What does it mean? It means payment, payment for slave labor and low cost labor for centuries, a labor that black Americans supplied to this country, to white businesses for growth of America. Well, should blacks be compensated for slavery? If so, how and when? That's our conversation. That's the Chicago conversation we're having today with two gentlemen, Steve Rogers, a former Harvard and Northwestern University professor. He looks at slavery purely with the eyes of an economist, and he's written a book about it. Also, we're going to talk to Mr. John Palfrey. He's the president of one of the world's largest foundations, the MacArthur Foundation. And he, too, agrees with the concept of reparations. But how? He looks at it through the eyes of philanthropy. And MacArthur is a sponsor of our program. Stay tuned. Great conversation, a Chicago conversation on reparations. Welcome to Indigo Studio. We've got quite a show for you today. We've got a discussion that's being had but not being had. So my guest, Steve Rogers, Harvard Business School and Northwestern economy teacher. And Steve has written a book, A Letter to My White Friends and Colleagues, What You Can Do Now to Help the Black Community. And it's really a book looking at the economics of reparations. And John Palfrey, sixth president of MacArthur Foundation, a professor himself, and he is looking at philanthropy in a different way. So, Steve, let me start with you, and let's talk about how you look at slavery, enslaved people, African Americans in America, and Jim Crow, from free labor to low labor, and how we got to where we are today. Hermine, first of all, thank you very much for having me this mm -hmm. morning. It's an mm -hmm. absolute pleasure to be here. My book is one that says that the problems and the challenges that we have in America today between blacks and whites, the problems are primarily rooted in economics, mm -hmm. specifically that, that our federal government and state governments did everything that they could to enrich whites, while at the same time explicitly and intentionally doing things to impoverish blacks. By law, with by government. Law, by the government, mm -hmm. by the federal government as well as state governments. Mm -hmm. And one of those, for example, is slavery. Slavery was mandated and endorsed by the federal government mm -hmm. uh, for the sole purpose of enriching whites. It was mm -hmm. not just to be mean to blacks, it was to enrich whites and conversely to so, impoverish blacks. So meanness was a byproduct. Meanness was a byproduct. <laughs> always, be, always be, as I learned when I was in the consulting industry at Bain and Company, never get seduced by the symptoms of a problem. Try to find the root cause of Thank the problem. Thank you. Thank meanness you. was the byproduct. But it was all rooted in economics, though, for the purpose of enriching whites while impoverishing blacks. That was 246 years of wealth creation that was occurring mm -hmm. uh, for whites. In essence, we had 12 generations of wealth being transferred from white, one generation of white family to the next, while we had zero wealth transference going on with the black community. And that was followed, Hermine, by 60 years of black codes. And black codes were where over 800,000 black people were, and it was under the title slavery by another name, where black people were convicted of crimes such as walking on the wrong side of the street, whistling while they were walking. And it was done for the purpose of getting black labor mm -hmm. and states 
actually leasing out these black people after they were in prison. prison. Mm -hmm. They were leasing them out to private companies like U.S. Steel. And states like Louisiana, for example, 92% of their budget came from convict leasing. So you had 246 years of slavery, you had followed by 60 years of black codes, and then that was followed by 40 years of redlining. All three of these things were explicitly done for the purpose of subsidizing and enriching whites, mm -hmm. while at the same time impoverishing blacks. Mm -hmm. So where we are today is not just by coincidence. It's not because mm -hmm. whites have worked harder than blacks. It's not because whites are smarter than blacks. It's because it was intentionally done by the federal government, and as I started say it with black codes, by state governments to impoverish blacks while at the same time enriching whites. And it worked. And so right now, 35% yeah, of the black community is completely impoverished. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, no, there's no net worth of the black community. So that all happened because the government made the decision that that's what they wanted to do to us. Now, John, you are in philanthropy, and you are looking at it differently than some of your counterparts and some of those who've gone before you as to how to correct this. You're recognizing it happened, it's a mistake. How do I do something about it? What kind of things are you putting in place? Well, Hermine, thank you also for having me mm -hmm. here. This is a, a real treat to be with you and, and with a, an author I much admire uh, across from me. I agree that philanthropy is doing some different things, needs to do some different mm -hmm. things. Stephen has made the argument, which I think is correct as a historical and an economic matter, that most of the wealth in the United States has been created by white people. There's an increasing uh, number of Asians and others who are creating a lot of wealth as well these days. So it's not, not exclusively white, but, but certainly predominantly. And much of philanthropy is white families, right, that are involved in having made a deal with the government and now are able to give it back. And so I think we have to be much more intentional to think about the leadership of philanthropy, the mechanisms of philanthropy, and I think to be more conscious of closing the racial wealth gap as part of what we're doing, rather than simply funding white-led or white-serving organizations. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this. I think part of that needs to be a focus on reparations as well. So philanthropy has traditionally fed schools, museums, art institutes, higher education, when does that money and does that money come down to community organizations where the real change can take place? It does sometimes, of course, but I think you're right that, that if, you, if you look at where most people who are white philanthropists, they have given a lot of their money to alma mater, right? Mm -hmm. And this is an argument that Stephen makes in his book, which is that if we are giving to predominantly white and white-serving organizations mm -hmm. with the great wealth, but we are underfunding, as we have the HBCUs as an example, mm -hmm. you see that the perpetuation of the system, even if it's well-meaning. I'm giving money back to the place I went to college where mm -hmm. my kid went to college mm -hmm. as a white person. But we need to think about the fact that that's actually going to perpetuate this racial wealth gap if we believe, as I do, that education can lead, of course, to economic opportunity. Steve, you point out something in your book that I think is little known. And that is what everybody has to remember when we talk about slavery is the slaves were non-human. All right. And you point out when the slaves were freed, it was the slave masters that got, quote, reparations because they lost their property. Absolutely. That, that, that is just yes. phenomenal. Well, Walk me, me through yeah. that. First of all, let me just say, you know, John's work with the MacArthur Foundation and what you just mentioned in terms of money flowing from the foundation to the black community, uh, that's great. But I want to commend John for also being a spokesperson a few weeks ago 
um, he gave a speech city club. In, at the, to the city club mm. to a predominantly white audience, predominantly business people. And it was a speech given by a white man endorsing and stating the fact that reparations were due to black people. So as far as I'm concerned, that's one of the greatest values that he's added to or brought to this topic about reparations. And that is being a spokesperson for it. the fascinating thing is that no reparations of any kind has ever been given to black people for mm -hmm. 246 years of slavery and those other three major incidents that I've mentioned. And there's precedent, though, for reparations being given by American, the American government. I'm going to ask you to hold that note because we come back. I want to we, we, so reparations is not a foreign concept. It's a foreign concept for black Americans. We'll be right back. Don't go away. We've got great conversation for you. This is a Chicago sure. conversation. To be positioned for the future, companies are ready to implement energy-efficient opportunities to improve workplace comfort. That's why businesses throughout Northern Illinois are partnering with the ComEd Energy Efficiency Program to find up to 35% in energy savings. Because at ComEd, we're not just powering for the now, we're powering your business for what's ahead. Here's to those who refuse to accept they're only human. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, proud server of the most advanced machine on earth. That's the sound of the ComEd Energy Efficiency Program, saving you up to $500 on your energy bills with rebates and discounts on energy-efficient products so you can enjoy the experience of coming back to a home full of savings. For all the journeys ahead, go with a partner who's been there from the beginning. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois is committed to advancing and simplifying the healthcare experience for its members and communities well into the future. Enroll at bcbsil.com. We're back and, and we're talking about reparations. Talk about the reparations that America has engaged. Okay. First of all, America has never given any re reparations to black Americans for what has happened to us. The only evidence of America even trying to do so was following the Civil War when the government uh, defeated the Confederates. And when America was winning and the Union Army was marching through Savannah, Georgia, and led by General Sherman, 17,000 black people were leaving plantations and following the Union Army as they were de defeating the Confederates and going through Savannah, Georgia. And General Sherman sent the letter to President Lincoln, and he said to President Lincoln, I have all of these Negroes following me. What should I do? And President Lincoln wrote him a letter back and respond to say, ask the Negroes, what do you want? And so General Sherman met with 20 black clergymen. Hmm. Many of them had been formerly enslaved. The average enslavement for the 20 black clergymen was like 47 and a half years. He met with them in like a five-star hotel in Savannah, Georgia, and he asked them, what do you want when you're free? They said, what we want is we want land. We want to be able to take care of ourselves. And then he asked them the second question. He said, do you want it amongst whites or do you want it separately? One said, we want it amongst whites. 19 of the men said, we don't want it amongst whites because we can't trust them to treat us fairly. And so 
After that, mm. special order number 15 was created, Hermine, by the federal government. And special order number 15 was some form of reparations, if you will. It said that they're going to take 400,000 acres from the Confederates who were fighting against America. They were going to take 400,000 acres of land from them and give it to black, black freedmen, the 4 million black freedmen, in plots of 40 acres each. And that's why the, to turn 40, 40 acres, acres in a mill. Mm-hmm. And it was not going to be given to them for free. It was going to be given to them for, at $1.25 an acre with 40% down. Okay, And so they were going to take this land from the Confederates and they were going to try the Confederates for treason. Many of the Confederates were supposed to be hung for what they did. And President Lincoln gets murdered. And when he gets murdered, the special order number 15 is rescinded by his vice president, President Johnson, who says black people should not be given something for nothing. He says they should work for it. And he's a former uh, slave owner himself. So after that, 40,000 acres that had already been partitioned out to black people was taken from them and given back to the Confederates after they just simply made an apology. That's all they had to do was make an apology. But there's precedent, as you stated earlier, for the federal government giving reparations. One of the precedents include the fact that after the Second World War, 120,000 Japanese Americans during the Second World War were interned because they were deemed by the federal government to be concerned about being loyal to the federal government because we were fighting Japan. Now, at the same time, we were fighting Germany and we were fighting Italy. Italy. But mm-hmm. German Americans and Italian Americans were not interned. In essence, 120,000 Japanese Americans were put in prison. And they were put in prison and held in prison for three years. After they got out, they were given a check for $25 and a train ticket to go back to their homes in America. In 1988, the federal government under Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan's administration, gave 80,000 Japanese Americans a check for $20,000 each in the form of, if you will, reparations for their imprisonment. So that's one precedent for reparations. The second one, as you pointed out, is after... Uh, the Civil War and after the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment was passed, the federal government actually gave reparations to over 900 white slave owners, former slave owners. And they were given reparations to the tune of $300 for every black person that they had enslaved. So we actually Because see they had lost their Because property. they had lost their asset, as mm-hmm. you stated before. Mm-hmm. And not only is that, rep- is that precedent in America... The same thing happened over the United Kingdom, and that is in 1843, when the United Kingdom abolished slavery and all of their colonies, mm-hmm. what they did was they said, we have to compensate the slave owners for their lost for their assets. Loss. So they actually took out loans. The federal government, the United Kingdom, Britain, took out loans to the tune of 20 billion pounds, and those loans were paid off, Hermine, and 20, billion pounds, 20 million pounds is about uh, $6 billion. But those loans were just paid off in 2015. So what you had was you had black Britons who were paying off loans that the federal government had taken for the enslavement of their own people. So precedent is there for reparations. So how do we do it? How could we do this in America if we really wanted to? The government has to participate. Absolutely. It cannot be done just by business. It cannot be done just through philanthropy. Do you think we'll ever get to a spot where the government will recognize, and you say the amount of money that's actually owed is in the trillions. Well, let me just say, and right? John mentioned earlier um, the wealth gap. The wealth gap between blacks and whites is something like $153,000. The average net worth of a white family is about 100, 170000 versus 17000 
for the average black family. So we have that gap of about $153,000. I propose that the federal government pay reparations to black people who are 18 years and older, who are descendants of black people who are enslaved, that they give them a check for that difference. That we talk about closing that wealth gap. That's the that gap. That a reparations check be given to the tune of $153,000. And from my calculations, there's over 30 million black people in the country. About 20 million black people would qualify for that. Mm-hmm. So at 153,000 times 20 million black people, we're talking about it would cost the federal government $3 trillion, which is $1 trillion less than what the federal government spent to bail out the banks. Our federal economy is about $21 trillion. This is affordable. And the reality, Hermine, is this. MacArthur Foundation and any other foundation, businesses, they can do all they want to to help the black community. But the reality is, unless the federal government steps up and makes that kind of investment and reparation payment Mm -hmm. to us, we'll never be able to catch up. One scholar said that if you stopped white wealth creation right now, it would take black people 225 years to catch up. And you point out 12 generations. 12 generations. Mm -hmm. And think about 225 years, very close to the 246 years of slavery. Mm -hmm. So that fits with that axiom that someone said, it's better to have a head start than it is to run fast. And in essence, white people were given a head start by giving them subsidized programs like Mm -hmm. slavery, Mm -hmm. black black codes, and red lines. Jim Crow. Absolutely. For 12 generations. Yes. So, John, in your remarks at City Club, you directly addressed white privilege. And you said white people have an essential role to play to reconstruct an equity recovery initiatives. Talk to that for me. Thanks, Jermaine. Yes, I I believe that this is a set of issues that affects all of us. Mm -hmm. So I believe that reparations is a topic, as is the racial wealth gap, that is not a black issue or a uh, Latinx issue or an Asian issue or a white issue. It's for all of us. It's an American issue. It's an American issue, right? Mm -hmm. We have an original sin in our history, as uh, I think Nicole Hannah-Jones and others have made that that argument very clearly. Mm -hmm. We have a system that is plainly inequitable, has been, and you've got a, a... great historian and economist who can give you chapter and verse, and you should read his book, um, A Letter to His White Friends and Colleagues, which which I've read and, and commend to you. And it's something where I think, as you've said, there are th- things that each of us can do, and his book actually gives a whole lot of suggestions. You can use a black-owned bank. You can give money to an HBCU. You can buy Red Bay Coffee, which is on sale over there at this, <laughs> at this cafe, which is a black-owned business. Support. There are things that you can do. A foundation like ours can do things. But the whole system needs to be changed and reconstructed. And I do think this is something where white people as well as people of color need to make this case. And I am one of those seeking to make the case. With respect to the government's role, I agree totally that the government must be involved. I am struck by, and in some ways the the grant making we've done recently is informed by the fact that for many years, and you tell me the exact number of years, but H.R. 40, House Resolution 40, has right. been presented. It has the number 40 to evoke 40 acres and a mule that never happened, although I think in the public consciousness there's a sense that maybe it did, but it didn't. H.R. 40 is a proposal not even to do the reparations. It's to have a conversation about the reparations. Mm-hmm. And so at MacArthur Foundation, what we're seeking to do by giving grants, some to NCOBRA and organizations that have been working on this for a long time, and some to newer, newer organizations like Diaspora Rising that are seeking to bring this conversation forward now, is to prompt that conversation. At a minimum, we should talk about this, but we have to have the conversation. You've got to have it, and, and that's where it starts. That's where it starts. One of the things that I'm proud of my alma mater is that Harvard Business School this past year 
introduced a case study about Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was, I was going to bring what up happened Tulsa. In Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. But Tulsa, Oklahoma is the topic of this case study mm -hmm. that was written at Harvey Business School and taught to 100% of all the 900 incoming students. It's mandatory. And what mm -hmm. the case is focusing on and at the question that's being asked of the students after the case and the narrative is told is, are reparations, is this community and is, uh, should America provide reparations to blacks for what has happened? If we look at this, what happened in Tulsa as sort of a microcosm, is this a statement that state or does this allow us now to get into the discussion about a, a reparations? And the bastion of hardcore capitalism, Harvard Business School, the majority of the students support reparations after reading that case well, study. Well, if you if you don't no. support reparations for Tulsa, you it's something wrong. You shouldn't be at Harvard. Now, did you see the testimony that they had with the Senate hearings for uh, some of the Tulsa victims? There are three yes, three absolutely. alive. Yes, one woman said the most profound yes. thing. I cried when I heard it. She was a hundred. And she was asking for the reparations. And she said what one of the senators asked her, how did the Tulsa massacre impact your life? And her answer was, you gave me a life filled with poverty. Yeah. I was denied school. I was denied business. You took what my parents had. You eliminated it. And so what could I do? Where could I go? And she said, I was committed to a life of poverty. That's one of the most profound things that I've ever heard. Now, we talked about reparations. We talked about the uh, Japanese and uh, what happened. We talked about the slave owners. But talk about the Jews. Let's talk about the Holocaust, right. because reparation has occurred right. there. And we're going to do that when we come right back from break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. To be positioned for the future, companies are ready to implement energy-efficient opportunities to improve workplace comfort. That's why businesses throughout Northern Illinois are partnering with the ComEd Energy Efficiency Program to find up to 35% in energy savings. Because at ComEd, we're not just powering for the now, we're powering your business for what's ahead. Technology is meant to make our lives better, especially when it makes them easier, happier, and healthier. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois is committed to advancing and simplifying the healthcare experience for its members and communities. Enroll at bcbsil.com. That's the sound of the ComEd Energy Efficiency Program, saving you up to $500 on your energy bills with rebates and discounts on energy-efficient products so you can enjoy the experience of coming back to a home full of savings. From preventive cancer screenings and diabetes care to hypertension and behavioral health management, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois is committed to advancing and simplifying the healthcare experience for its members and communities. Enroll at bcbsil.com. Welcome back. Steve, tell me about Holocaust has appreciated right. reparations. Right. What's that been like? Right. Well, you know, during the Second World War, 
Hitler put in the concentration camps and killed over mm -hmm. six million Jews. And the German government finally came to the realization that reparations were due to the Jewish community. And it was not a popular thing by the German government mm -hmm. to pass it. Over 70 percent of German citizens were against paying reparations, rightfully paying reparations to the Jewish community. In fact, violence ensued after the mm -hmm. federal government of Germany made the decision to pay reparations. But they were paid, and over $89 billion have been paid uh, to the Jewish community, rightfully so, as a result of what happened to them and what the federal government... And we're still paying. In Germany, and, and they're still being paid, still rightfully being paid. so. Mm -hmm. And so, again, there's, there's, there's international precedent mm -hmm. for people who have been hurt. So, John, you said something that caught my eye. You speak of the urgency of now and reimagine the possibilities. Explain that, the urgency of now and the reimagination. Well, I might be just saying something personal in, in the sense of uh, feeling like we have a moment where we can do something. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as a president of a foundation, I have an opportunity to do something. So I'm feeling that fierce mm -hmm. urgency of now. But I do think the, the death of Breonna Taylor, the death of Ahmaud Arbery, the death of George Floyd, I don't need to go on. But we've had a time when these things that have been happening for a long time have come into the national consciousness in a very explicit way. We do have a time, I think, where there is a, at least a conversation that hadn't happened about the nature of these harms and the way in which the structural and systemic racism is in fact playing out, a city like Chicago being a, you know, a wonderful and terrible example of that. So I feel like this is a time, an opening, where we need to have the conversation, we need to do something about it. So the conversation is important, it's not enough, we've got to do something about it. And I feel like we have that opportunity mm -hmm. and I really hope we take advantage of it. If not now, when? If right? not now, when, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, certainly in my lifetime, I've not seen an opportunity mm -hmm. like this or felt an opportunity Absolutely. to push it. And I, I love this example that if you put a case study of the taste that Tulsa massacre in front of a thoughtful group of people, at the other end of it, they're gonna say, we need to do some reparations, mm -hmm. right? I think actually that, that that learning needs to happen in our country, in our city, and around the world. Thank you, John. Thank, thank you for you, being with us, and thank, thank you for the work that you. you're doing thank at MacArthur. And Steve, great book, and I'm glad your daughter told you to write it. Thank you very much, <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. I absolutely oh, loved it. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today, as we had just a wonderful Chicago conversation. When my family was forced to leave Tulsa, I lost my chance of an education. I never finished school past the fourth grade. I have never made much money in my country. State and city took a lot from me. Despite this, I spent time supporting the war effort in the shipyards of California. But most of my life, I was a domestic worker serving white families. I never made much money, but to this day, I can barely afford my everyday needs.